Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, we're counting down to Nigeria's elections. What will the results tell us about what Nigerians want for their economy and security? Next, we'll discuss the violent insurgency in northern Mozambique. What do we really know? Plus, we start a reoccurring series on analyzing Africa. Today, we'll explore how big data can offer new insights into key developments across the continent. So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. As the 2019 presidential elections draw closer, Nigerians have to choose from an array of candidates. I'm voting for Alaji Atiku Abubakar because I know that he's the man for the moment. I'll be voting for Atiku Abubakar. Atiku is a man that has a large heart. He's not Buhari and he's not Atiku. We're just a few weeks away from the Nigerian presidential elections, and in episode one, we talked about some of the dynamics, but I'd like to do a deeper dive to help our audience think about some of the really critical questions that these elections are going to raise. Joining me today to discuss the election is Olusian Onigbe, who is the co-founder of Budget, Ariel Benyashi, who is the chief economist at Data, and Hilary Mathis, who is a PhD student at Yale University and the author of Women and the War on Boko Haram. So this is the sixth election for Nigeria since the transition of civilian rule. Everyone can disagree, but I've been impressed that both major and minor parties and the voters are actually talking about issues, in part because this is the first time both of the major candidates are Northerners and they're Muslim. I'm hearing a lot more about which candidate will be better for the economy, which candidate will be better for security. And that's not to say that ethnicity and religion and region don't matter, but I, I do think that we are at a place where issues are at the forefront of this debate. And Lucian, I, I want to get your sense um, on whether, one, I'm correct, <laughs> and then two, you know, what do you think the, the conversation around particularly the economy is in Nigeria? I think you're correct. Uh, things are improving. Uh, I think the the last election uh, took Nigeria's political system a notch uh, higher, and I think um, nobody wants to bring it down. So there's a whole lot of uh, attention, um, and I think the trust level is also very, very weak. Um, the opposition has been raising questions about um, certain officials. There are also questions around also the conduct of the police, but mm-hmm. the president did well by removing the former uh, police chief and uh, replacing him with a new one just this week. So if we look at the economy, and I think that's a big issue, um, Nigeria is growing fast, a big worry. And we're going to have even much more younger people than the whole of Europe combined um, in the next 30 years. So I, I think everybody's beginning to come into that realization that we need to pay attention to the economy. Uh, we had the brutal recession for like six quarters. The problem is we're, we're dependent on oil. So we mm-hmm. go through the fluctuation of oil prices, uh, maybe even our production numbers all the time. So whoever is going to make that dent has to first tackle that question. And how do voters rate the Buhari leadership on the economy. What grades does he get? It's not been great. If things were addressed in his administration, you know, we waited eight months to get a minister. He waited eight, one year to appoint, to get them to settle down and get his first budget running. All that one year was wasted. But I think he's put his own attention on infrastructure and, and also a bit of social investment programs mm-hmm. like jobs, 
But but that's not what would fix Nigeria. You need much more investment in expanding the, the private sector. And I think that's where Atiku comes in and says, I want to you know free up the economy. I want to open up the space so that the private sector can invest, so that jobs can be created. And that's when I'm going to give the economy twings. And that can only happen when we pay attention to the non-oil sector. Yeah, I mean, the non-oil sector, I think, has been one of the more dynamic uh, parts of the economy for mm. a very long time. Hillary, you've spent a lot of time working on security issues. Uh, you were up in the Northeast interviewing uh, women who had been part of Boko Haram and in the refugee camps. Can you talk a little about how security is playing into this election? When we talk about what sort of violence will shape the election, a lot of eyes turn towards the Northeast. And certainly that conflict has been the headline conflict in Nigeria. Um, So before delving into how I think violence in the Northeast will manifest during this election and how it'll potentially shape the voting, I think it's really important to highlight that that's not just the only crisis. This long-term trend of middle belt violence, communal violence, often described along um, ethnic or religious lines, but is fundamentally about control over resources and is thus a really political conflict, also has the potential to shape who feels comfortable voting when and where um, and could have ramifications for the election. Um, More towards the country south, I worked with the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime to produce a report about targeted killings in Nigeria. And there, too, we found, you know, really strong political overtones, um, not just in who was targeted, but also in how political affiliations drove violence. No, I'm really glad you did that. I think the north central region that you talked about, the middle belt, is a big question yeah. on whether or not they'll vote for Atiku or Buhari. And I think the southwest is also a place that perhaps is up for grabs. Mm. Um, if you're talking about one region that is feeling um, maybe disillusioned with the economic stewardship, you've got a perfect example of economic issues and security issues overlaying nicely with um, the election. But in the Northeast, which is where our audience probably thinks first, what's your take? In recent weeks has been a really troubling trend in the Northeast in which we've seen uh, elements of Boko Haram overrun military bases. Mm. Um, and that's really kind of disheartening, particularly if you're a supporter of Buhari, who has, you know, campaigned on his image as being a military man and who's made defeating Boko Haram a central campaign promise of Boko Haram's violence um, in these recent weeks might prevent people from gathering in these areas to, to queue to vote, uh, simply because that's a really appealing target. Um, the other issue that we have to contend with is um, voting amongst displaced people um, and Nigeria's regulations about having to vote in the areas in which you're indigenous. But if the government isn't taking proactive steps uh, to ensure that the displaced populations are capable of voting, um, then that's certainly going to be an issue. You know, stepping back, I think whoever wins this election, it's going to pivot on whether or not the Nigerian people see it as a change election or not. Whether or not uh, they they decide that Buhari has not been a good steward of the economy and security and decide they need a change, or they're not interested in what Atiku is offering and they believe steady is the course with Buhari. Ocean, you know, here are two candidates who have been involved in Nigeria for a very long time. Buhari took power uh, in a coup in the end in 1983, and Atiku has been in the political scene. They're both 70s. So, how do young people feel that you know these candidates are? I'm looking at the North Central and the South and the Southwest as like the two swing areas. I think in the North Central, I've said for a long time, the voting pattern shows that the North Central has always stuck with the PDP. But in the last election, they moved to the other side. But this time, I think Buhari has also not addressed 
that space well enough. There's still this tension between natives and, and the Fulani groups in, in those places. So I'm also looking at how does that turn around? What's going to be the response to that? Do they stick with Buari or do they go back to their traditional bases? Um, also, the Southwest is somewhere you might see a strong level of apathy to the elections. They always have the worst one, and I think it would be much more was this spread around. It's still very close to call. I've not seen the kind of optimism or the kind of tension that we had in 2015 and 2019. The two candidates don't create enough yeah, excitement. Absolutely. But maybe in 2023, if Buari wins, we can now have a much more balanced field and maybe much more cerebral, much more younger and, uh, candidates who can push this thing. That's forward. a long time to wait for a youthful <laughs> candidate. Hillary? It's been really striking to me to sort of watch the goodwill that Buhari enjoyed mm. evaporate over the course of his term. And mm. so you mentioned earlier the delays in appointing ministers. And I remember people kind of commenting warmly on it. We trust in him that he's mm. doing this mm. methodically. And uh, and now, you know, a lot of the commentary, it seems much less patient. I mean, this this notion that he's been cloned, uh, is, <laughs> it's, you know, it's laughable here, yeah. but it, it speaks to yeah. how people conceptualize of of his competence. Jimmy Kimmel mentioned uh, the clone issue, but could just for our audience who isn't on it, what's the story? <laughs> well, now I have to compete with Jimmy Kimmel. Uh, <laughs> no, so there was a rumor that uh, President Buhari, who sought, um, I think it's fair to say, extensive medical treatment yep. abroad, yep. Um, had been cloned and replaced. Mm. And while that, I mean, I laughed when I read it. This was The Onion in Nigeria <laughs> writing a take. Um, this was a, a quote-unquote fake news story yeah. that was being pushed out and that people were using to defame Buhari. Yeah, yeah. but because it was also not close, it was not coming to the media. Buhari has never had a press engagement since mm. late 2015 yeah. up until maybe two days, two nights ago. Is this still Buhari that we we always knew, or is there someone new now? Jibrin from Sudan, you know, that's what they call <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's all just laughable, yeah. Over the past year, more than 100 people have been killed in a growing jihadist insurgency. The militants are reportedly trying to impose Sharia law in the majority Muslim province. There has been a serious outbreak of violence in northern Mozambique. There's debates on what even they call themselves, whether it's al-Shabaab, uh, which is just Arabic for uh, the youth, not necessarily the Somali version of al-Shabaab, or al-Sunna Wajama. This group has conducted more than 80 attacks. There's been 194 dead, 342 injured, 750 houses sacked or burned in, in seven districts, and, and those numbers probably need to be updated. My view is the best way to think about it is not only to get granular evidence, but to think about it uh, in the comparative sense. So Hillary and I have both worked on Boko Haram, and I thought, Hillary, you could talk to us a little bit about what are the things that you have learned about an insurgency in an area that is politically, geographically marginalized? The events in northern Mozambique have been you know, sort of darkly fascinating, in part because it's shrouded in so much mystery. So it's not necessarily clear what this group is driving after, nor do we necessarily know how well integrated they are into the local community. Um, and it's unclear to what extent it's an external group using Mozambique as a base, uh, or to what degree this is uh, an insurgency growing out of Mozambique. Regardless, we can look at Boko Haram and, and other um, jihadist insurgencies in West Africa more generally to understand 
what we should be looking for uh, as to whether or not they'll try and ingratiate themselves into the local community um, and to what extent they'll be using the local community in order to support themselves. And so we should really be turning our eye to the region to see, is this a group that's going to provide for socioeconomic opportunities for the most marginalized within that region? Um, and, and I really do want to emphasize the, the socio part of socio- socioeconomic, mm. because we know from interviews with you know members of these groups and residents of the community that it's not just just the economic opportunity. It's really the sense of self. It's it's the identity and the social capital that can be developed in these groups um, that's particularly appealing. Because I also think we should be looking at intermarriage if it is an external group into the local community. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, as, as we've seen um, with AQIM in Mali. I also think that it's worth comparing um, this nascent um, insurgency with some of the, the resource-based insurgencies that we've seen. This is a a region that has significant stores of liquid natural gas that uh, are in the process of being developed. And so I think that we could definitely see the development of some grievances associated with exclusion from the development of these natural resources. Ariel, why don't I I bring you into the conversation since Hillary raised uh, investment and uh, your organization, Aid Data, does a credible job of looking at the financial flows and understanding how local economies, national economies are engaging in the international system. And I, I wonder if you have any uh, insights into uh, what this means when you have this violent insurgency developing right adjacent to a huge potential revenue stream. I, I do think that there's quite a bit that we can learn both from Nigeria and other spots um, across Africa although I do think the LNG field in, in northern Mozambique sounds like it's, it's still a ways off. In some of the you know, kind of diciest situations where there's already quite a bit of activity going on, we are seeing much more Chinese and other uh, investment types coming in. Um, and those uh, you know, are not in and of themselves necessarily problematic, but they do carry some potential risk from our studies to date, suggest that, um, that the host governments really need to think carefully about how to engage. So, you know, we're seeing, in some cases, faster kind of environmental degradation um, from um, Chinese-funded um, infrastructure investments, Chinese-funded natural resource extraction, um, and uh, you know, there's there's rightfully also concerns about kind of social exclusion. Uh, also, increases in local corruption and, and you know challenges in local governance. Now, you know, that narrative about the way that kind of Chinese investment happens, um, you know, that's that's a pretty complex one, um, and we certainly don't find those challenges everywhere. We we do we see examples even in Tanzania, not that far away, of kind of well managed um, investment by by Chinese and other actors. Yeah, so it sounds to me like the 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 challenge here is to uh, be mindful of. Uh, Chinese and other international investment and really try to think through if that investment is not done in an environmentally um, you know, sound way or if the labor practices are problematic, that it could actually um, add to the complications around this problem set. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think there's, there's quite a few risks of um, you know, degradation of, kind of local, uh, sustainable uh, livelihoods. Um, there's kind of broader challenges with um, you know how responsive local leaders are to citizens and, and residents, as opposed to you know, foreign investors. There are examples again from elsewhere on the continent where those are done reasonably well, and that investment actually leads to you know pretty pretty decent socioeconomic gains. Um, but but it is definitely an open question, especially in, in a region like northern Mozambique. <laughs> 
I want to move to our big topic for today. Uh, this is the first in an occasional series on analyzing Africa. This is a topic that is near and dear to me. Um, prior to joining CSIS, I was a government analyst uh, who worked exclusively on Africa. And so thinking about how do we understand this complex continent? How do we leverage the best insights available, uh, both from data, historical case studies, cultural studies, and then conveying it to very busy people who either um, know a lot about Africa or who are generalists and have to get that elevator brief and then move on and make decisions. Our guests today work for organizations or have personal expertise that I think can shed a light for our audience on how do you think about big data? How do you think about the information that is accessible now through organizations such as Aid Data, such as Budget? The work that you consistently do, I think, has shed a light on fiscal transparency in Nigeria, which certainly needs a light shine. So if you could talk us a little bit about your organization and why it's unique and what impact it's having on Nigeria. So me then an idea on how do we simplify government budgets with people. Because the budget was just there on the budget office website, nobody was engaged, nobody paid attention mm-hmm. to it. I feel like we can use our creative and technology tools to simplify it and find channels to, to share it with people. And that's how we started in 2011. Uh, we've grown bigger than that, so we do much work work on project tracking now uh, in 22 states in Nigeria, going around and tracking public projects. Uh, we also do some work on extractive transparency. Uh, we also do some work on uh, institutional engagement, so support government, press, civil society, on deepening transparency in Nigeria. Uh, so what we what we have, our thesis is that if we give people information in a very simplified way, uh, irrespective of their literacy status, um, economic status, or even interest in governance, they should be able to make sense out of it and take it from whatever state it is and ask questions and demand accountability. And the impact we've been having has been great. So in Nigeria, one of the things we've done is we we run campaigns um, on open ass. We did a huge campaign on getting the National Assembly to open its budget to the public. So it's like um, National Assembly checks everybody, but who checks the National? We also do a lot of work on, with NMPC, you know, very, very notorious entity. <laughs> yeah. It's the uh, Nigerian state oil, company. Yep, state oil company. We also engage them on improving their numbers, improving transparency. What I think about your organization is that there is an educational component and empowerment element for the Nigerian people. Mm. But for uh, analysts who are trying to understand Nigeria Mm. uh, and get a better picture of its economic Mm. uh, trajectory, or if you're interested in looking at what leaders are um, executing on their pledges and promises mm. and or thinking about uh, due diligence uh, with corruption and budget is a, an incredible resource. Yeah. The other resource that I turn to a lot is RLs, which is aid data. Um, I find myself referencing uh, the work that your organization does um, quite regularly in my own research. And so I was hoping you could talk us a little bit through Aid Data's mission and research, and particularly how your work has added a lot of clarity to the China-Africa relationship. Well, we are a research lab based at William & Mary down in Williamsburg, Virginia. And uh, we really aim to basically equip policymakers, practitioners, researchers with really better evidence on some very specific questions we really started out trying to answer the who is doing what question, as in in the foreign aid space, um, can we sort out um, from these large projects uh, what the real activities underlying them are? 
And then we moved fairly quickly after that to try and understand where they were happening. Um, and it's that where part that we've really, I think, taken into the big data space. But increasingly, we're also trying to answer to what effect are all these activities uh, being carried out. In the case of our China and Africa work, we uh, basically have developed a methodology that gleans from uh, open source news reports um, and increasingly from other proprietary databases also um, information about Chinese aid and investment activities. Our site now contains um, lots of interactive maps, downloadable data sets, um, all of which kind of describe the last decade or so, um, Some in some cases going back actually on nearly two decades um, of China's activities in, in the foreign system space. It's really remarkable the light that you've shed on on the China-Africa issue. And as uh, the U.S. government really focuses on competition with China uh, in Africa, I really implore our audience to go to aid data and try to get uh, some truth about uh, where China is operating. Now, I want to turn, Hillary, to get your perspective on data collection. You have done some really incredible projects at John Hopkins SICE. You mentioned already your work for the Global uh, Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. And then you're currently an analyst at the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project, which is known as ACLET. So can you talk about how um, you approach data collection? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm sitting here sort of in awe uh, of the other two guests who run these these big programs. Truly, it it is like a work of art to to manage this many people. On the academic front, I think a lot of us uh, kind of cut our teeth critiquing data sets. And then when it's finally your turn to build them out, you realize like, oh, wow, this is so much harder than you anticipated, particularly when you're um, coding things as as nuanced and thorny and often as difficult to verify uh, as political violence. I I really try and go into it with... um, with an understanding, one, of, of the limitations uh, of the data available, I'm frequently using, um, like, aid data, um, secondary news sources, um, collaborations with um, NGOs or people on the ground, um, and really trying to understand the context from which the reports that I am seeking to put into a data set have emerged. Um, particularly now, we're seeing news being repressed uh, or censored by the government. And in other instances, you'll have uh, reports exaggerated um, or intentions attributed to actors that are impossible to verify and might be politically motivated. When I do my work here at at CSIS, I really do have to think about the context in which the data is acquired, Mm. which I think Hillary is talking about. Mm. And then also, how do you augment and enrich the numbers? Um, Because this is not, you can't, I don't believe you can be an analyst, an effective analyst on Africa and just be uh, focused on the numbers. In the same way, you can't just do the the qualitative stuff. You really do need the numbers and evidence to back it up. So how do you marry up science and art to have analysis? Ariel? I think turning to data to look for, if you want, kind of counterintuitive results is a, is a really like, powerful way to start your research and then complementing it with lots of qualitative work um, and other styles of, of work on research. We sometimes get stuck in this kind of confirmatory bias of you know, qualitative work sometimes in which we happen to see in the news, for example, things that kind of confirm what we believed uh, or intuited are true. Um, while the data is sometimes harder to kind of 
refute and coax into those kinds of stories. In the recent study found that, in fact, Chinese uh, foreign assistance projects in, in Tanzania seem to maybe even reduce deforestation outcomes, um, wow. which is a good a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly, you know, runs counter to a lot of the narratives. Yeah, I love that. That's my favorite thing about sort of the data that's available to us now. And even, even modeling, which I'm not the biggest fan of, <laughs> um, you know, on the face of it, both of those things force me to really question my assumptions, to challenge the way I think about certain issues, um, and then sort of go back to the fundamentals and, and rebuild the analysis so that the argumentation is stronger and the insights are more impactful. Tracking kind of different patterns over time when you have a set methodology becomes very powerful to see how things have changed over time. Um, but my real answer is, is being aware of the significance of data gaps. Mm-hmm. Um, and in recent years, I've, I've turned my attention towards the issue of gender. Uh, and in, in a number of sub-Saharan African countries, data on gender is just so frequently missing. Um, yeah. And so understanding the politics behind why that data might not be there and the significance for what that means for women and girls. Data is fantastic and excellent. And, you know, we need more evidence-based policy and evidence-based lobbying. Um, but we also need to be mindful of where are their gaps and why and, and what are the power of those gaps. That's really interesting. Okay, last question. Uh, Magic Wand, what additional data would you love to have to have more of an impact in the work that you're doing? I think for my own point, spending more, spending data. Um, so the budget is great, but you also want much more uh, spending that on a large scale, maybe by legislation or maybe by form of executive order. Yeah, I think that would make a lot of sense to say, you budgeted for this, you've released this, and having it in a periodic way and in a, in a way that's much more systematic would be helpful. We'll let the new government know. This is a, <laughs> we'll put this on their to-do list. Oh, good, Ariel, good. what about you? Ironically, I'm going to totally agree with Allison and say that, um, you know, for, for our purposes, often the challenge really is to understand what the domestic government is doing, sometimes in response to foreign assistance or kind of maneuvering around foreign assistance or really good data on domestic spending is actually pretty crucial for a lot of the work we do. All right. We're, we're forming consensus. Hillary? I would love to have more information about intentions and willingness. Yeah. Um, so when I was working at the Combating Terrorism Center, putting together a data set on... Um, Suicide bombers in Boko Haram, uh, oftentimes with some of the younger bombers, we would ask ourselves to what extent were they willing to do so. Um, And I think that that's an issue that crops up a lot, uh, particularly when you're dealing with child soldiers, um, but also female combatants, conscripted combatants. Uh, What was the willingness of the person that was engaging in this attack? And what does that say about group cohesiveness, group ideology, um, the training of fighters, um, all of that? And that's something that uh, if I could wave a magic wand, I would have done yesterday. Well, I'll join you and say that I'd like to see more data on sentiment. And one of the organizations that's not here today that does fantastic work in addition to aid data and to budget is Afrobarometer. It really is the most reliable source for sentiment analysis. You know, those are huge undertakings. And I'd like to see what social media could do in terms of Twitter, in terms of better sentiment. But then also knowing that there are so many limitations to Twitter, specifically for our for sub-Saharan African countries. And, and how do we get a better sense of how people think about issues and how they're responding? So um, with that, we'll see you next time on Into Africa. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find good content. 
You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org Africa. Thanks. 